Welcome to Next Left. I'm John Nichols of The Nation magazine. And this week we're talking with Congresswoman Deb Holland about what it means when President Trump tells newly elected members of Congress to go back where they came from. Holland is a newly elected member of Congress from New Mexico, where her long history of activism includes stints as chair of the New Mexico Democratic Party in a bid for statewide office. A lawyer with great organizing skills, she has hit the ground running in the House as a key member of the Armed Services and Natural Resources Committees. She's the co-chair of the Congressional Native American Caucus. And on March 7, 2019, during a debate on voting rights, she became the first Native American woman to preside over the United States House of Representatives. Congresswoman Deb Holland, thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a real honor. And I, I want to just start out with a line that was at the end of your introductory video when you ran for Congress. If I'm not mistaken, it closed off with you saying, I'm Deb Holland, and Congress has never heard a voice like mine. Right. It was such a great way to introduce yourself and to draw people in. Tell me what you wanted people to hear and to think about when you said that. So, uh, you know, 2018 has seemingly been, you know, the year of diversity everywhere. There were a lot of folks who had never run for office before run for office, a lot of just diversity in our politics. It seemed like we were bringing people in. Of course, I had worked on diversity in our politics for a long, long time in New Mexico, always working to get underrepresented communities to the polls, registering them to vote and so forth. And um, I just, you know, having, knowing that we had never had a Native American woman in Congress and it was 2018, it, it made me want to take that diversity uh, here to Washington, D.C. And, you know, I just made sure that people knew that that was a fact. Mm -hmm. Winning a primary and a general election, taking a seat in the House and coming through a, a different route, obviously, as you point out, than a lot of members before you. One of the first Native American women elected to Congress with Sharice Davids. But what's interesting for you is that you didn't rush into politics as a young woman. You came out of a tradition and that's probably a very good place to begin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Laguna Pueblo people? Sure. Well, you know, I was I spent time on the Pueblo sporadically because my dad was a 30-year career Marine, and so we traveled a lot. I grew up on military bases on the West Coast in Southern California and on the East Coast in Virginia. Uh, his job, you know, just moved us back and forth every couple of years. Uh, his last duty station was Albuquerque, New Mexico. We moved there when I was about 14 and he became the recruitment officer for the Marine Corps in Albuquerque. And so that was really the first time where we had uh, extended periods of time with my grandmother who lived at Laguna, you know, pretty much all her life. Well, not really all her life. She, she her and my grandfather were part of the assimilation policies of the United States, so they actually spent 45 years in Winslow, Arizona. My grandfather was a diesel train mechanic on the railroad. You know, my grandmother, 
she ran a Pueblo household. My mom ran a Pueblo household. I was steeped in my tradition and culture at an early age, even though um, I didn't, I wasn't there all the time. And this is a community, as you well point out, that you know people sometimes are moving to other places and moving on. But this is a community with with incredibly deep roots in New Mexico. Absolutely, yes. The Pueblo Indians migrated from areas like Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, Bears Ears, Grand Staircase Escalante to the Rio Grande Valley in the late 1200s. Usually it's been probably around 1280. So we we migrated there. There were there were many different villages when the Spanish came in the late 1500s um that you know a lot of our pueblos became abandoned because we couldn't sustain ourselves any longer. There's a whole history of that. Uh, the Pueblo Indians uh, drove the Spanish out of the Southwest in 1680 during the Pueblo Revolt. The Spanish came back in 1692. We learned to get along with each other after that. And um, so here we are 400 years later or something like that. And, and um, you know, we're still there. We're st- we still have our traditions. We still have our culture. And uh, we're grateful that we live in a state that respects Indian tribes and, and, you know, cares about voting and cares about economic development and, and all of those things. So when you settled back into New Mexico, growing up in a military family and, and with a, a Norwegian American dad uh, who was in the military and your mom was in the military as well. Yes. Get back to New Mexico. And around that time, you started working in is it roughly around there started working in a bakery is that right so i'll tell you the nature my dad was raised on a farm in minnesota and so he right he he learned hard work at an early age because that's what farm life is like right kids have nobody is exempt from working uh when they're raised on a farm so my dad you know, when I turned 15, or just when I was about to turn 15, uh, my dad, like, he he was just like, okay, you got to get a job. Like, he wouldn't let anyone sit around the house. We, uh, even before I was 15, he, I was out looking for a job because there's just no way he would ever, you know, stand to have teenagers sitting around doing any, doing nothing. <laughs> so I did, I found a job at a local bakery. My sister had found the job there first and they still needed someone else. So I applied and got the job. I was a retail sales girl until I graduated from high school. And then they moved me to the cake decorating department. So I learned, I have a trade. I learned how to decorate cakes and, uh, you know, big, great, big wedding cakes and all those things. <laughs> It's a big deal. That's a good talent. It is. Well, I mean, I can always make a living if if I fail <laughs> at politics. <laughs> you know, I worked at the bakery for a long time, probably 12 or 13 years. And I one day I got up because, you know, it's a hard job. When you're a cake decorator, you have to get up. You have to be at work at 6 or 6.30 every morning. And one morning I woke up and said, am I going to be doing this for the rest of my life? And the answer was no. And that's when I decided that I should go, go to college. So I didn't start, I started UNM when I was 28 years old. 
And you didn't just go to the University of New Mexico. You really excelled. You got you ended up going to law school. I did. I didn't go straight to law school, though. I waited. Uh, I got my college degree. Uh, my daughter was born four days after I graduated from college in 1994. And then I decided to start my own business because I didn't want to put her in daycare. I couldn't afford it either if I had wanted to. So I started my own salsa company. So I made salsa and sold it to grocery stores and things like that, went to food shows, and we we did all that for uh, for a long time, actually. And then I went to law school in 2003. Let me ask you about it. You mentioned frequently that this getting involved with Native Vote and with organizing Native Americans. As I understand it, when you were kind of getting more involved in politics, you would go to Democratic offices and say, do you have a list of Native Americans? I want to call them. Or I want Absolutely. To... And so you were affirmatively saying, look, we can do more here. Yes. You know, one of the things that inspired me was in 2002, Tim Johnson, who was elected senator in South Dakota, on election night, you know, he had essentially lost the campaign until the following morning when votes came in from Indian country in South Dakota, the Rosebud Sioux Reservation or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and the Indian vote put him over the top and he won that election. I was so inspired by that that I just truly felt like that's what I, that's what we all should be doing. You know, that was an early inspiration for me, and I've been passionate about uh, underrepresented people getting to the polls ever since. And it's why here in Congress that my part of H.R. 1, the big, you know, the big bill to address, uh, you know, campaign finance and, and voter oppression, my part of that was same-day voter registration, because I think people you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't have same-day voter registration. It's just too easy. The technology right now, it's so easy that, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to, you know, nobody's, you know, taking these things by um, horse and wagon to the county clerk's office anymore, right? We can do things pretty quickly <laughs> through technology, and there's no reason why we shouldn't have same-day voter registration. So, I'm always going to push for ways uh, for, you know, the door to be open to people to vote because uh, Native Americans in New Mexico couldn't vote until 1948, until they were sued uh, by a, a Marine who had fought in World War II. And when he came back home, found out that he couldn't vote in state elections, so he sued the state of New Mexico. Uh, so Native Americans in New Mexico didn't have the right to vote until 1948. So, you know, we're behind, uh, so to speak. So I want to make sure that we catch up and exceed our opportunity to get to the polls. Uh, but think about this for a second, that Native Americans weren't made citizens of the United States until 1924. And Native Americans were fighting in, uh, you know, in wars uh, for this country mm -hmm. before they were citizens. And... Uh, Jim Thorpe, who won gold medals for the United States in the Olympics, he wasn't even a citizen of the United States when he 
when he represented our country and won our country gold medals. So uh, Native Americans have been um, active participants in this democracy for long, long, long before they were ever considered citizens. And, and I just think it's time that, um, yeah, that our voices are heard more, that we have a seat at the table, that we can make decisions and, and fight for the things and make things happen that, that have needed to happen for a long time. And yet there is still real voter suppression. We saw that in North Dakota. Uh, I know. Just last Doesn't year. that make you mad? That makes me so mad. Well, except except this is kind of a poetic justice uh, that Ruth Anna Buffalo, she's a member of the Mandan Hidatsa Arikara Nation. Uh, she defeated the Republican who wrote that law to disenfranchise Native Americans in North Dakota. So she's the state representative now, and that guy who uh, was all for voter oppression is out. Yeah, there is a little poetic justice along the way, and that you're right that it's encouraging. But as you say, it's it's shocking when you think about shocking. it. And, and in that case, one of the things they did was take advantage of a reality as regards people having addresses and, mm -hmm. and how addresses are organized. And because Native Americans uh, often live in rural areas, Mm -hmm. And often live in places where, you know, the, the communities have been organized perhaps in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, voting rights issues, be there, there are a lot of, lot of openings uh, for those who might want to suppress. There are also a lot of dangers. And so yes. having a Native American in Congress is a big deal simply because absolutely. of an awareness. Well, abs absolutely. We, we, we deserve to be here. We deserve to be everywhere. We'll be back after these messages. Ovid TV is your new streaming service for documentaries and independent films from around the world. As a special introductory offer, save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head over to www.ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code NEXTLEFT and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. This offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films, which you can start streaming on all your favorite devices, including Apple TV and Roku. If you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday, hosted by Jamila King. It's called The Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections, alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter. 
told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Congresswoman Deb Holland. So let me ask you about, as you were coming up, you had you had been active in New Mexico and you had been a candidate for statewide office and not elected, but mm-hmm. had gotten your name out there. Then right before you, I, I think around the time you were deciding to run for Congress or a little before it, uh, you went up to the Dakotas and you were as a active political person uh, at Standing Rock. Yeah. And I'm wondering what influence that had on you and right, how, right. how that uh, impacted you. Mm-hmm. So that was during the time that I was state chair of the New Mexico Democratic Party. You know, I had been watching that issue unfold on social media, and I felt so bad that, I mean, I just really felt like I needed to stand with those people to protect their water. And so so I went, I, I took a chance. I didn't have, yeah, there were no cars available to rent. I just, you know, I just said, I'm going. And I made contact with the Democratic Party of North Dakota. They hooked me up with one of the Native American candidates. And she picked me up from my hotel and drove me all over. She drove me out to Standing Rock and and I was very grateful uh, for her assistance, but I kind of, uh, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I did it. I took a bunch of green chili from New Mexico and roasted it. I went to the chairman's camp and roasted the chili and I made a big pot of green chili stew and some tortillas over the campfire and you know we all shared a meal together because i that's our way as mm-hmm. pueblo people it was a place of about where i think an awful lot of folks um saw things happening that were unsettling and troubling the solidarity was beautiful but the the police reaction and things of that nature yeah that was that was terrible that was so uncalled for our um at the time our federal delegation uh, our senators and our representatives, um, they wrote a letter decrying the treatment of, you know, hitting people with water cannons in the middle of winter time. That's just, uh, that's just, it's, it's horrible. They, like when I think about what they were doing, right, trying to protect their water, that's their sacred site. Like Native Americans had no say in the exterior boundaries of their reservations or, you know, communities, those were all drawn for them by the United States government. So a lot of sacred sites for Native Americans are not within their exterior boundaries. It doesn't mean that they cease being sacred sites. They're still sacred sites and they still, you know, they still have a a need to protect those sites. I'm hoping I can bring some understanding to some of these things. Well, it has great meaning simply to have, just from the, the reflection of America, the, the notion that we should have Native Americans in Congress and Native American women in Congress. Absolutely. Yet it took until 2018 
It's a remarkable thing. Did you, you, you had to run your campaign. Mm -hmm. You're good at politics. You've been around it and that. But was there a point where you paused and thought, you know, wow, this is, this is history. That that cam the campaign you ran and and the victory was a, was something epic in the story of America. Yeah, you know what it was. I guess it was hard for me to grasp that, right? Thinking that it was you know that it was me who was the one making history, because I have to tell you that I worked on both of President Obama's campaigns. I worked on his first campaign in two thousand eight. That I really uh, went to Indian country and and organized like crazy to get out as many votes as I possibly could for him. And uh, I was all over that, right? First African-American president. Like I was all over that. I, I really wanted to see that happen in our country. Mm -hmm. and But yet it was hard for me to see it in the same respect for myself. You know what I'm saying? Like it's sometimes it's hard to look at yourself in the way you look at other people. And in that same regard, uh, people look at you differently than you see yourself. So, oh, I agree. I think I think many of the the most amazing people in our politics are often very humble about it, and and don't always don't always see themselves uh, as ended up in the history books. Uh, and yet, there was something tremendous that happened. Something that was noted on the day after the election when they went across all the historic firsts of two thousand eighteen. Uh, and then you had a, a quite remarkable swearing-in party in Washington. Tell us a little about it. We did. It was amazing. We had a woman from New Mexico. She was the planner, Stephanie Poston from Sandia Pueblo. She planned the whole event for us. We were going to have it at the Indian Museum. And then the government got shut down. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> it's, almost, it's almost too bizarre at that point. <laughs> So uh, how do you like that, right? The first two Native women wanting to have a part of soiree at the Indian Museum and the government was shut down, so it was closed. So we we uh, quickly, um, I wasn't planning it. They were all planning it, um, but I was kind of keeping an eye on what was going on. But they um, they ended up moving it over to the Hilton, I think it was. And um, so it was a lovely event. Mark Ruffalo came. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He came to our... Joy Harjo, mm -hmm. the upcoming first Native American poet laureate mm -hmm. to the United States. She was there as well. She she read a poem for us. Uh, we had the drum, a drum from the Ho-Chunk Nation come and they sang and it was just a it was a really just a really lovely event in a way i i was happy well of course i was happy for everyone right people so many times throughout history native americans have been challenged uh, sometimes insurmountable challenges and so often we have had to experience defeat and this seemed like somewhat of a victory in a way like Finally, um, you know, after I got into office, a group of Native women came to visit me here in my office, in my office in Washington, D.C. There was probably t 10 women in my office. And so we all got in, got our chairs arranged. We sat down. And usually when I have a group of people, I say, the floor is yours. Um, you know, whatever you whatever you want to talk about, I'm here to listen and this one woman spoke up and said, could we just sit here and 
soak it all in for a few minutes. And I was like, of course. And, you know, she said, for 20 years, I've been coming to Capitol Hill to advocate for my people. And this is the first time I've ever, you know, it was just, it was a really nice moment, I think, for me to to feel like I'm happy that, that people feel comfortable, of course, in my office, but also like feeling like maybe there's some hope for the future, uh, uh, for the things that we've been fighting for. Mm, that is a, that is a fabulous story. And those are the good ones. It happens. We were speaking to one another around the time that the president of the United States, uh, just tweeted something about saying that progressive democratic women, uh, should go back where they came from. And you are one of this remarkable group of, of women who've come to Congress. And it was an absurd and, and horrifying and racist mm-hmm. tweet yeah. for all the members. But it's especially, it's something especially jarring for you as a Native American to be told to go back where you came from. Yeah, he, he's just so ignorant. Sure, go back where I came from you know, back to Laguna Pueblo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, when I think about those comments, he, you know, part of, he's just going off the deep end about this. It looks, he looks actually really crazy for some of the things that he's been quoted as saying, but it's sort of like, if you don't like, you know, his idea is if you don't like it here, then leave. And that's not what we do as Americans. We stay here and we fight. We don't, you know, when, when, when Native Americans, uh, rather than to just give up their fishing rights, they fought for their fishing rights. They fought for their water rights. The people at Standing Rock fought to protect their sacred lake. We don't cut and run. We stay and fight. And uh, that's what we're fighting for, a more just country, because we have a president who uh, clearly doesn't understand what it's like to be an American, like you know, like it is for us, for us who who have had to scrap and save and you know apply for food stamps and all of these things. He has no idea what it's like to struggle, but those of us who know what it's like to struggle, uh, we can fight harder and longer uh, than he can. And so we're going to, we're going to stay the course. We're going to fight for justice and equality. Uh, we are going to fight to the bitter end to make sure that immigrants who come to our country are treated with respect and dignity. Uh, we're going to do all of that. So I, I, you know, we have staying power and we'll see if he does too. Congresswoman Deb Holland, that is such a strong and good note on which to finish. Thanks for joining us on Next Love. Thank you for having me. Very honored to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Join us next week as we take the next left with Philadelphia City Council member Helen Gim. She's an activist and an organizer who's fighting and winning battles for educational justice and worker rights. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Devoy. 
Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week was by Tom Bernath. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.